Thanks, Danica. Uh, we're going to look at those passages in a little while, but I, I want to start off at a point that Byrne had us at a little while ago in this service. I remember exactly uh, what I was doing. Um, we were living in Mudgee at the time. I was minister at St. Paul's there. And uh, that night, Fiona had gone to bed early. Uh, she was about 16 weeks pregnant with Patrick. And um, I had stayed up to watch this relatively new TV show I'd started following, um, a show that Channel 9 didn't really think very much of, and they kept putting it on late and kept playing around with the, the time. Um, and so much happened, I, I don't remember what the episode was. I went back and I checked. It was season two, episode 20 of The West Wing. Strange, that. <laughs> anyway, the thing was, during a, a little um, ad break, right toward the very end of the program, uh, there was a little news report that said uh, messages had come in saying that a plane had crashed into one of the buildings at the World Trade Centre. And so when the show finished, instead of turning off the telly and going to bed like I normally would, I decided, look, I'll just stay up and watch this and, and find out what's going on. And it didn't take long at all. Within a few minutes, I saw with my very own eyes, they were talking about whether this could be some kind of accident. How is it that a, a plane could accidentally crash into a building like this, uh, into the North Tower? While they were talking about that, I saw on the screen, from the, the side of the screen flying in, was the second plane that crashed into the, into the South Tower and then exploded. And I, I can't really explain fully the, the things that I felt when I saw that happening. Uh, the awfulness of it, the, the horror, the emptiness, and this kind of urgent necessity that rose up inside me that I needed to keep on watching as one unthinkable moment rolled into another. Um, my guess is for those of you who are alive, I know there are probably some at church tonight who weren't even born then, but um, for those of you who remember, you probably found out the next morning when you turned on the radio or TV or when you opened up a newspaper or something like that. The thing is, by the morning, morning Australian time, a pretty clear picture had emerged that this was certainly an act of terrorism by radical Islamist jihadis who had decided that they needed to attack America. And quite suddenly, like this is one of those literally overnight moments, 9-11 changed the way people spoke and thought about Islam. In fact, it changed the way people spoke and thought about religion in general. And within a few years, books started coming out. So in 2004, we got Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, a book which he says for him, just flowed straight out of the, those first few weeks of collective grief and stupefaction. That is a cool word, isn't it? <laughs> that, but this, for him, is, is his response to what happened at September 11. And the thing is, in his book, The End of Faith, it's not the radicals, it's not the fundamentalists, it's not the extremists that Harris was going after. It was moderates, people like us. He said we were the cause, we were to blame. And so all of a sudden this, I guess you would say long-held but never very assertive idea that religion is to blame for all kinds of violence in the world, 
Just look at Northern Ireland, look at Bosnia, look at the Crusades or the witch burnings in Salem. All of a sudden, this kind of soft-spoken idea that had been standing in the corner, sometimes interjecting into the conversation, but mostly kind of ignored, overnight, literally overnight, this soft-spoken idea had been given this big megaphone. And everyone was listening. So Oxford professor Richard Dawkins came out saying, science flies you to the moon, but religion flies you into buildings. The award-winning journalist Christopher Hitchens, he was telling the world that religion poisons everything. Um, that religion itself is a threat to human survival. And so that was rolling on, 2004, 2006, 2007. Here we are now, exactly 15 years later, and it's almost taken for granted these days where we live. You hear politicians talk about it. You hear people in the media. It's almost taken for granted that it's religion and religious people who are mostly responsible for violence and warfare. In fact, more violence and warfare on the planet has come from religion than from anything else. That's what you hear. A lot of people think the same sorts of things that Actress Gwyneth, pa Gwyneth Paltrow expresses in this quote. She says, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. It's what separates people. It causes war. Or another actor, Bill Murray. Bill Murray says, religion is the worst enemy of mankind. No single war in the history of humanity has killed as many people as religion has. And when you hear those things being said these days, a lot of people kind of nod their heads and go, uh-huh. Yep, they're right. Are they right, though? I want to come back to answering that question in just a minute. What we need to note for now is that things have changed in our world over the last 15 years. Because of September 11, the idea of religiously motivated violence has actually come close to home. It's happened in places where some of us had visited, uh, to people like us in a society like ours. And as a result, there is this movement that the solution to the problem is to get rid of religion. Think of it like this. It's like the, the teacher has called us to the front of the classroom, to the blackboard, and asked us to solve the problem. And the equation that we have come up with as a society goes like this. Terrorism and war and violence, we understand that they're bad things and they shouldn't be in our society. Add to that, that it seems like the religion is a pretty serious cause of violence and warfare. The result of that, what that means is that we would therefore be much better off if we got rid of religion. That's the kind of equation that people have gone through in their minds that's spoken about these days. Think of it another way. It's kind of like September 11 was like a, a medical emergency almost. And it opened our eyes to this terrible sickness in the world. And we're going, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with us? Suddenly a group of guys and women in lab coats and stethoscopes come in and they say, we've made the diagnosis. We can tell you what's wrong with the world. The diagnosis is that religion causes hatred and war. They looked up at the Twin Towers and what happened at the Pentagon, and they said, that, 
that religious motivation, that is where the sickness comes from. It's all caused by religion. And if we need to, if we're going to cure our society so that we don't have this disease anymore, then the solution is to get rid of religion. That's where things have shifted to in the last 15 years. And that was reflected in some of the questions that came in when we encouraged you to ask anything of us. People ask things like, how can we call ourselves a peaceful people? Hasn't the church gone to war and killed other people too? Aren't Christians just as bad as any other violent religious group? Isn't religion the cause of war? All of those are questions that kind of undermine our sense of, should I follow Jesus or not? And they're good questions to ask. We need to wrap our head around these things a bit. So here's where we're going to go in the time that we've got left. Um, First of all, I think we need to question the diagnosis. We need to examine that diagnosis that religion is the cause of war and see whether it actually measures up to the facts. And I think like you do when you have any other diagnosis that you're questioning, you want to get a second opinion. So we're going to get a second opinion as well as to what is the reason, what's the cause for the problems in the world. And if we find that that second opinion gives a better explanation, then we've got a better sense of perhaps how to approach the problem that we're faced with, what the solution is, what the cure is. So let's start with that that, uh, questioning the diagnosis. What are the facts that we've got before us? Is it actually true that more people have died because of religious conflict than any other reason? It's It's a very popular idea. Just, you don't have to put your hands up or anything, but just think to yourself... Do you have any idea? Um, how many people do you think were killed during the Crusades, perhaps? Or how many people died at the hands of the church in the Spanish Inquisition? There's a very popular perception out there that the Inquisitions were responsible for hundreds of thousands, if not maybe millions, of deaths. As the church tried people for heresy, they tortured them, they did whatever they could to get confessions out of them, and then they burned them at the stake and executed them and got rid of them. The Inquisition. A lot of people will say, oh, hundreds of thousands. In fact, I I read one figure uh, during the week where someone had said that it was, you know, upwards of 60 million people had been killed in the Inquisitions. You kind of go, wow, that's so much. The population of the world was only like 150 million then. And and I guess that points to the trouble, doesn't it? It's just not supported by the facts. Those sorts of figures are just plain wrong. Um, that, That is the way a lot of these arguments are made. So one commentator, a guy called Dinesh D'Souza from the States... He, uh, he's talking in one of his books about the arguments that are put forward by people who say that wars cause religion. And he says that position tends to greatly exaggerate the crimes that have been committed by religious fanatics. So they're magnified and it neglects or rationalizes the vastly greater crimes committed by secular and atheist fanatics. In other words... If you're Christopher Hitchens and you want to say religion poisons everything, you shine a light and you inflate the numbers or you go with the kind of 
urban myth numbers for, for things like the Crusades or the witch burnings in Salem. And you also look at Hitler and you say, well, Hitler was a member of a church, so the Nazis, they were, that was a religious war. Religion causes those wars and stuff. So you rationalise the crimes, the greater crimes of secular and atheist fanatics. And I think, uh, I think Dinesh D'Souza's right. There's a lot of wobbly numbers out there, a lot of urban myth about the numbers that get quoted. The thing is, it's not hard to find out what the real numbers are. We know from history, from good research, that in the 350 years of the Spanish Inquisition, around about at the outside end, 6,000 people were killed at most. Uh, most scholars would say between 3,500 and 5,000. We, we're pushing it out to 6,000. Now, let's be clear. That is 6,000 deaths too many. But that's the figure. 6,000 over the course of 350 years. The thing is, 6,000 is the same number of people killed by Joseph Stalin's non-religious atheistic regime every week. Okay, 20 to 23 million people slaughtered. What about if, if we think of Northern Ireland? So I remember when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, that was the conflict that people pointed to if they wanted to say religion is the cause of violence. Look at what's going on in Northern Ireland. The Catholics and the Protestants, they hate each other. They're bombing, they're shooting. That's all caused by religion. <clears throat> now, again, we know the facts. We know that around about 3,500 people lost their lives in a period of about 30 years. And it was a terrible tragedy. Horrible things happened. 3,500 people who should not have died. But let's just remember that more than four times that number, so getting close to 15,000 people, were killed in less than 12 months in the French Revolution in the period that's called the Reign of Terror. Now, remember... The French Revolution is not a religious conflict. It is a secular revolution in the name of liberty, freedom. I think Dinesh D'Souza is right. In fact, when you look at the figures, the, the atheist or secular caused strife adds up to bigger numbers than the religious caused strife. But the argument tends to downplay that and shine the light on the religious strife. My point, however, is not that irreligion is worse than religion. It's, it's not that the secular model is a worse model and causes more war than, than the religious model. My point is just this. The facts don't support the secular diagnosis of the problem. Religion doesn't cause war any more than atheistic humanism can be blamed for it. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, since religious societies and non-religious societies are just as oppressive as each other, we can only conclude that there's some violent impulse so deeply rooted in the human heart that it expresses itself regardless of belief. Since the non-religious and the religious societies both go down this track, 
It can't be whether it's religion or irreligion. It's got to be something else. And that's where we're headed now for a second opinion. Not to Tim Keller, but to Jesus Christ. What does Jesus have to say about where the world's problems come from? So this is where we need to get our Bibles out. I want you to turn to that passage that was read from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 17. Was it page 971? Is that right? Okay. Matthew chapter 15. Um, Let's just have a look at the beginning of the passage to start with. Um, This is a passage, I don't know if you realised it when um, it was being read out before. Jesus was sounding off at the Pharisees in here. And it happened because if you look verse 2, the Pharisees, who were the most observant and most religious Jews of their day, they had had a go at Jesus in verse 2 because Jesus didn't make his disciples wash their hands according to the the traditions of the elders. They weren't following the right religious ceremonies. And it's kind of, Jesus, you call yourself a rabbi and yet you don't make your followers follow the, the traditions, the rules of our religion. What kind of religious leader are you? And Jesus takes the opportunity to really point some things out about the rabbis, uh, about the Pharisees. And he also, you'll notice, takes the opportunity to say something even more important than that. He wants to say something that is deeply important about the human condition and what makes this world a mess. So let's pick it up in verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him, gather around everyone, and he said, listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. Okay, It's not whether a person has washed their hands or not that makes a person right or unright before God, but what, makes, uh, what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And his disciples are kind of scratching their head. They say, what are you talking about? So he explains from verse 17, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? It's no big deal, really, Jesus says. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. Do you see where Jesus is headed? This is stuff we've talked about in church many times before. This is, this is what his diagnosis is about humanity in general. And what's interesting is he is having a go at religious people here, but he doesn't say that religion is the problem. He says the problem actually goes a whole lot deeper. So from verse 19, he spells it out a bit more. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And we could add to that list all kind of other things, couldn't we? From the heart come hatred and anger and violence. And Jesus says, these are the things that make a person unclean. If you think about categories of who is in God's camp and who's not in God's camp... It's not whether you follow a particular set of religious rituals. It's what's in your heart. Eating with unwashed hands doesn't make him unclean, he says. What I love uh, about what Jesus says here is that on the one hand, he's saying, yes, there are big problems with religion. Religion... 
um, is one of those things that can make you pay so much attention to following the rules, to watching to see whether people wash their hands correctly or whether they pray the right kind of prayers or whether they vote for the right political party or checking whether they're saying the right things and linking to the right posts on Facebook. Religion can have you so busy paying attention to the rules and trying to work out who is in and who is out that the whole thing ends up being a disaster. It's a system to try to make yourself justified, to to lift yourself up and say, I belong with God and those other people out there, they don't belong. Um, Notice in this passage though, as I say this, I want you to notice that Jesus does not hold back about the Pharisees. So look at verses 13 and 14. What he says about them is not flattering. He says they are blind guides If you follow them, they will lead you to disaster. Sooner or later, you'll be walking down the street. Someone's taken the manhole cover off to do some work and crash, you're in the sewer. Jesus calls these religious people the onion weeds that are growing up between the petunias and he says they're about to get a big dose of Roundup. Religion has its dangers, Jesus says, absolutely Religion, we know, can make you blind to your own unjust attitudes. If you want to, because you use religion to justify your standing before God, you can use your religious belief to justify all kinds of greed and prejudice. And that's what's so helpful about this passage, what I love about it so much. On the one hand, Jesus is saying, watch out for religion. Um, being religious is not going to save you. Being religious could lead you to fall into a pit. But on the other hand, he doesn't blame religion. He doesn't say religion itself is the real problem. He says the real problem comes from the human heart. And so Jesus' diagnosis goes like this. It's not religion that causes war. Yes, Religion might be the soil in which hatred and violence are given a chance to flourish and grow. And let's be honest. Sometimes, to its shame, to our shame, the church has provided a fertile place for prejudice and hatred and violence to flourish and grow. Not just wars, but the current Royal Commission into Institutionalised Sexual Abuse, it's uncovering all kinds of stories of how the church created that environment in which the evil things within people's hearts were able to flourish. Flourish is the wrong word, isn't it? They were allowed to grow and they were kind of justified and covered over with this veneer of religiosity to say, well, it didn't really matter. That is a tragedy. That is a terrible thing. Let's not be afraid to say that. Let's not be afraid to say that when men bash their wives in marriage and say, I'm justified because the Bible says she needs to submit to me, that is downright wrong and evil. And that comes from the evil in a person's heart. Sadly, the church has provided the environment in which that can happen. But it's not religion itself that is the problem. So it's not a matter of religion or no religion. What we've got to deal with is the brokenness and sinful self-centeredness that is built into the fallen humanity of every single person on this planet. 
if you want to stop wars, you are not going to get there by getting rid of religion. If Jesus' diagnosis is right, then what you need is you need something that is going to get deep down inside a person's heart into who they are and how they think and what their fears and what their motivations are and change a person from the inside out. And the only thing that is going to do that, the only thing that can really get down deep and change a person that way, according to Jesus, the only thing that can really do that, I believe, is the grace of God in the gospel. That's what changes people from the inside out. When you are just confronted by this love and mercy of God that first of all kind of whacks you and tells you that actually despite what you think about yourself, you are fundamentally more sinful and broken than you would ever dare to admit to anybody else, let alone yourself. You, you're confronted by this and you're, once, once it exposes the rottenness in your heart and how those deep down motivations and fears are setting you in the wrong direction, having shown you that you really, you really actually do deserve to go to hell and suffer the judgment of God, after having confronted you with that, the grace of God then wraps you up in this marvellous embrace and draws you in close and tells you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're actually more deeply and wonderfully loved and thoroughly transformingly loved than you would ever dare to hope for. Because God looks at us while we're still sinners, and he says, you know what? Though you deserve my anger and wrath, I'm going to love you. I'm going to do something for you that you can never do for yourself. I'm going to show my mercy to you and start changing you from the inside out. That's a great message. Now, I don't know if you noticed this uh, when we had the um, second reading, when Danica was reading from Revelation chapter 19. Um, Revelation is a really interesting book of the Bible. In fact, we had quite a few ask anything questions there. And God willing, we'll, uh, we'll look at Revelation next year perhaps. But um, it's full of this crazy imagery that's hard to make out. It's pretty easy to figure out Revelation 19. It's a battle scene. This is warfare that's being depicted here. There's a guy on a white horse, armies following behind. There's blood everywhere. But I don't know if you noticed in this battle scene, there is only one weapon. Just one weapon. It's a sword, a single sword. And it comes from the mouth of the person who is riding on the horse, who is Jesus. The sword that comes out of his mouth is not a literal sword, of course. This is imagery here. It represents his word, the the things that he says, the message that he announces, the gospel. And you see, it's with his word that he goes into battle and it's with his word that he conquers all of the nations. There are no other weapons described here. Now that, that picture makes sense when you realise, look, anyone can see at a hundred paces that the Jesus of the Gospels did not promote violence. Instead, he taught people to love their enemies, to pursue humility, to be agents of peace, to forgive other people. That is the the content, not the whole content, but that's the core content of his message to the world, this word with which he will conquer the nations. 
a message about our broken, sinful hearts, God's love, and how that is going to change the world. And it's a message not only that he spoke, he didn't just teach people to be humble, he embodied this in himself, especially when he went to the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he humbled himself to the lowest point. He loved his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he did that so that we could be forgiven and pardoned. He embodied the message in his life. And if we're going to untangle this web of violence and war in our society, then we need to be changed ourselves by that message. We need to get it deep down inside of ourselves, into our very hearts, and we need to let it be changing our hearts. See, the gospel of God's grace, it's not just a message that you respond to when you become a Christian and then you move on to other things. It is the message that changes you all the way through your life, and it will flow out of our lives in changed behaviour. If that message is not changing us, then we're not going to change the world. We're just going to participate in all of the horrors that go on. In our household, um, everyone is involved in music. And I have to tell you, I'm a very thankful dad that none of our kids chose to learn to play the violin. I love the violin. There's some wonderful music that has been written for the violin. But when someone is beginning to learn the violin, the sound that it makes is not divine. It's that other thing from that other place. When you hear someone who's just learning to play the violin, though, you don't blame the composer of the music, do you? It's not the music that is the problem. It's that this person hasn't yet mastered it, hasn't yet learned how to do it. And that's what it's like for us. When you see Christians who are violent and hate-filled, don't blame Christianity. They haven't yet had the gospel of God's grace change their hearts so that it flows out in that behaviour. I heard someone recently say that the problem with a violent Christian is not their Christianity, it's their departure from Christianity. So do religions cause war? Not any more than secularism or atheism are the cause for warfare and violence. See, the problem isn't religion. The problem is our hearts. Hearts which can be changed by God's word of grace working in us. God's word of grace which is transforming the world by which Jesus will conquer the nations So much so that 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah was writing about the vision God gave him of how the nations would come together to worship God together. Kind of like we saw a couple of weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2. And in Isaiah chapter 2, he talks about it like this. He says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. He says, nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That is where things are headed, friends. That is what the victory looks like when Jesus rules by his word, that sword that comes from his mouth. It's described a little later on in Isaiah in chapter 11 like this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. 
and the little child will lead them. That's the work that God is doing. That is the end point. That's where we're headed. That's what I want you to get caught up in heading towards yourself. Don't treat the the word of God's grace as something which is superficial to your life and you celebrate it on Sundays. Let it work down deep into your heart because that's where the real change is going to happen. That's where the real battleground is. And as that works in your life, as you are transformed by his grace, until the day that this vision comes true, we will be little sprinklings of that truth in our workplaces, in our families, in the places where we study, where we hang out with our friends. Let's not miss the opportunity to show people what that transformation looks like in the here and now. How about we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, in that passage in Revelation, Jesus is described as judging with justice. And we thank you that in the long run, we can trust that your justice will prevail. But Lord, we see so much injustice and hatred and conflict in this world that shouldn't be there. And Father, we know a lot of people just want to blame religion and point the finger and say to us, you're the problem. You've got to change. Well, Father, we admit that we are the problem, but we're all the problem. And so we pray that your word of grace might work in our hearts to bring transformation, to change the way we live and speak, the attitudes that we have. And Father, we pray that you'd use us as we wait for for that great day when there will be no more war. We pray that you'd use us to be peacemakers, that you'd make us people who pursue humility, who love our enemies and who, who forgive those who've offended us, who work for peace wherever we are so that Jesus might be honoured. We pray it all in his precious name. Amen.